You may find this hard to believe, but 60 songs that explain the 90s, America's favorite poorly named music podcast is back with 30 more songs than 120 songs total. I am your host, Rob Harvilla, here to bring you more shrewd musical analysis, poignant nostalgic reveries, crude personal anecdotes, and rad special guests all with even less restraint than usual. Join us once more on 60 Saws that Explain the 90s every Wednesday on Spotify. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find out what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older. 18 and older in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. Hello and welcome to Group Chat. I am Justin Barrier and joining me, the two newest spokesmen for Unitas, it is Rob Mahoney and Big Waz. What's up, boys? I hate you so much. I can't even play along. <laughs> I, I don't. I want to distance myself as far as I can from our, our guy, Johnny Isaac's brand. Yeah, uh. wokeness is run amok, Justin Barrier, <laughs> including my very presence on this podcast network. <laughs> It's, and so Jonathan Isaac is here to rein us back in. Fuck affirmative action. <laughs> Do you think kidding. they'll get us get a spot on uh, on uh, your your popular uh, video series? Um, it's it's unlikely. Yeah, we we try to stay away from from um, outward racism and and bigotry. Uh, it's a bold stance. The, towards the blacks even when it's coming from blacks <laughs> okay well something to consider perhaps you know um especially since our boy john just wants to see both sides of things uh we're gonna get into some coaching action that has been heating up in the midst of the nba finals but first we're in the midst of the finals rob you're there live in denver what what's it like in in, in the heart of of the nba finals right now in terms of the the finals itself, are you asking about the city of Denver? What do you want the scouting report on? A little Justin? bit of both. Give me give me a, a potpourri. Uh, Denver's delightful. Really enjoying my time here. You know, I think like I've heard the Portland comparisons. I think some of them are fair in terms of, like a more mountainy, outdoorsy 
variant of Portland. I can I can see it. I can see the vision. In terms of the series itself, look, it's it's an unusual finals, right? Just in terms of the matchup of the teams involved, the media presence that comes with those matchups. It's a it's a quaint neighborhood affair as far as NBA finals go. And honestly, that treats us real heads just fine. We know what we're out here for. We know what we're seeing. <laughs> and so far, it's the Denver Nuggets being, I would say, pretty dominant despite what the margin ended up looking like. Yeah. So is there any like additional context, any like on the ground details, like seeing the sights and sounds of Denver's beatdown of Miami probably was a little bit different than what we experienced uh, watching from afar. Was there anything like you picked up on or noticed uh, in the seats? I mean, some of it like you can tell even from no matter your vantage point, obviously the size advantage is going to hit a little bit different. The sluggishness probably, you know, you could credit to some of the altitude differentiation uh, of Miami being dropped into this market and having to figure it out. They they looked a step slow. The Heat certainly did. And so I think there's going to be a lot of chatter as to whether that's something that, oh, they're going to get used to playing in this environment now that they've been here for a few days going into game two. Or as I lean, I think this is just kind of what this matchup is, is that the Heat, by the nature of how they have to match up with the Nuggets, are on the ropes in so many of these individual matchups. It's just really hard for them to keep up. It's really hard for them to keep pace. And I mean that literally sometimes in transition as we're seeing all these wild cross matches across the board. But it's just it's just a really a really brutal matchup in the sense that it does feel like one of these teams is kind of head and shoulders above the other. And I say that with great respect for how Miami got here, but they just don't have the horses Denver does. Yeah, and I think I think part of what got lost in the upsets that Miami pulled off is how insanely well they were playing. Like they were playing incredible basketball, but I think the marker of the truest marker of what Rob just mentioned about how they seem to be a bit outmatched here. Uh, Jimmy Butler specifically, right? Like he goes five for 13, doesn't have his, one of his better playoff games. But if we remember the Bucks matchup specifically, the drop coverage team in the NBA, uh, Jimmy was attacking Brooke Lopez as if he were Bill Wennington or something, right? Like with abandon, he was attacking Giannis Antetokounmpo. He, the, what he did to Drew Holiday is something I will never forget, right? Wild. First team All-NBA, the premier perimeter defender of this generation, right? Um, he, to see him not want to challenge, look, I love Nikola Jokic. He's my MVP. He's not a great defensive player. You shouldn't be afraid to go challenge that guy at the cup. To see Jimmy's, you know, sort of hesitance in doing that, uh, I think that's part of the, that has to be said. That's part of the problem. He's not playing up to the level that he was when they beat two teams that coming into the playoffs, most people, not me, thought were better than the Nuggets. Okay. Everybody thought the, the Bucs were basically the title favorites. And right behind them was the Boston Celtics. The Heat beat both of those teams, but Jimmy played differently than he did in that game one. It's just like, not even like, oh, he missed shots that he normally makes. He's not taking the same kind of shots that he was taking in those series to elevate um, Miami. And so I think that's, that's fixing to be a big problem for these guys. Well, and it needs to be said, Jimmy has just kind of played differently overall since that ankle sprain earlier in the mm. playoffs. Has not, he's had exceptional moments, ex exceptionally explosive and aggressive moments, but as an overall baseline, kind of looks like a little bit of a different guy than he did before that sprain. Yeah, so overall, the Heat played pretty well in game one, right? 
uh, you know, the limited Denver's fast break points. Michael Porter Jr. didn't have a good game. On and on and on. It seemed like they tightened up all the things you would expect from a Miami team. But I think the question for both of you is, like, are you glass half full based on that or empty? On the one hand, they played well, but they did lose pretty handedly. The margin was slimmer than it was at certain points. I think it got up to, what, 24 at a certain point? On the other hand, are there ways to build upon that? They're shooting which had been a big strength for them all postseason. They made a third of their threes. Guys like Struess didn't hit all nine of his. Duncan Robinson wasn't hitting anything. They also had two free throw attempts the entire yeah. game. And on the one hand, maybe that's a whistle. Maybe that's whatever. But on the other hand, they nah. also weren't getting to the paint enough. And so, Waz, are you like, well, maybe they could build on what they had and do X, Y, and Z? Or are you more uh, skeptical based on having a good game and still losing? To me, they can't really be expected to play better defense than they did in game one. They played good enough defense to win that game. And I bring up Jimmy because he's had these superlative performances. Like, I don't think he has to score 50 for them to win, but he needs to be in the 20s. He's got to be at like 26 because this is going to be a, def- a a series that they win if they win, if they make it competitive. It's because they're doing it on the offensive end and their offensive output just wasn't good enough. I'm sorry, uh, 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 offense based around, yeah, Bam out of bio took 25 shots. Probably what, 20 of those were jump shots? Like it, you can't build a healthy offense off of Bam out of bio jump shots. That's not a thing. And so I wonder if they have to start. We know it's Miami. We know it's heat culture. We know what Pat Riley's legacy is. We know Spolstra's. Spolstra at this point, crazy to say, has a legacy, right? Like we know what his legacy is and it's been built on defense. I wonder if they're going to have to start doing some more offensive forward lineups um, because I don't think they're going to guard these guys no matter what. So I wonder if they're going to start doing offense first here. What does offense first look like for Miami, though? I mean, I, I, you could argue, you know, maybe more Duncan <laughs> Robinson. Like, there's there are definitely individual players who skew more offense than defense. But collectively, in terms of creation, they're kind of already putting some of those lineups out there, right? Like Jimmy and Bam, and to some extent, Gabe Vincent and Caleb Martin. Like, those are the creators on this team. And I, I don't, I don't know that you're stretch, you're gonna stretch much further than that. So to me, this is where you got to start asking yourself harder questions, right? Um, if you're going to play a big, because like I think about that. Remember that Dallas game um, against the Nuggets, where Luca was just so ruthless against Jokic in the pick and roll at the end of the game, where it's five out and it's like you could pick your poison here. This guy cannot guard a five out offense. And we're going to put him in the action every single play. And they generated beautiful three-point looks, pretty much possession after possession after possession, which was one of the few times this season when I was like, damn. So I wonder if Miami goes, hey, bam, you can't shoot. You're not guarding this dude one-on-one credibly anyway. Maybe we go with some Kevin Love minutes here because he's a five-man who can shoot and he can do like a decent, you know, facsimile of post-defense, right? Maybe, but these are hard questions that you ask yourself when you are severely outmanned. (laughs) And that's the thing is like not only were the Heat outmanned, it was so clear from the opening possessions of the game 
that the Nuggets were completely dialed in to what Miami was going to do, the way they were going to front, the way they were going to press, the way and how and when they were going to run zone. And I think Miami still was able to, to do some things successfully in spite of that, just because they're a team of good, smart, hardworking players. But I don't know. It just it felt like they were climbing a mountain. Even when they closed the game to single digits, it, it never felt like the Nuggets didn't have control of this game. And that's concerning because like, you know, we can talk all day about, oh, you know, Max Struess missed so many open shots. Denver is not going to shoot below 30% from three yeah, probably ever again in this series. Mm-hmm. Michael Porter Jr. is not going to go two for 11 from three again. This might have been your shot if you were the Heat, right? Like this might have been the chance where the shots weren't falling. And yes, you couldn't contain the two-man action. And yeah, Aaron Gordon was eating at the rim. But this was probably there for you if a couple things swung a different way. And to your point was about like, the importance of the offense and the focus and the lean of the offense. That's where I'm looking at Jimmy Butler and just the way you are and saying, why were you not attacking in and pick and roll? Why was that not a point of emphasis? How did Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray end this game with three total fouls between them? That tells me you're not attacking them enough. And that's a disposition thing. It's an approach thing. Obviously, Bam was able to be I think relatively successful given the shots and opportunities he had, but you're right. Like that is not going to carry you to any kind of success in this series. A bunch of bam at a bio mid range jumpers. So I think they have three choices here and they can do fits and starts of, of all of them actually. But to your point, maybe they just are emboldened by the second half that in the first half, it, they really got punched in the mouth and it was tough to recover from that. Even when they started to shoot threes and get back into the game, the, 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 uh, the lead was so insurmountable that it was really just catching up just for the sake of it rather than actually coming back into the game. Are there ways, Rob, that you saw where they can generate more opportunities at the rim considering where Jimmy is just maybe physically and just the the amount of bounce that he has left after the ankle sprain or whatever it is at this point? Is it getting bam opportunities for that? Because as we mentioned, it did seem like he was settling for jumpers, although that's been the case on and off throughout the postseason. Did you see anything from that game one? You're like, well, if they did X, Y, and Z, maybe they can get to the cup more. Just yeah. based on not, not making any major like go small, go big adjustments. Yeah, I think like literally you just gave them the same possessions again and the same spots on the floor, the same opportunities. And there's just a shift in terms of how they're thinking about those opportunities and what windows are available to them. It's not like Denver's defense was locking up every driving lane. The Heat were actually able to get to the rim sometimes in ways that made you wonder, like, why is this not happening more frequently? Why are are they not taking advantage of these same positions more often? And a lot of that is going to have to come down to Jimmy just because the other guys on, on the team can't quite do it the way he can. But there's such an interesting thing happening in this series, in this dynamic, with Jimmy Butler, with Bam Adebayo in particular, because they're really the only size the Heat have on the floor in a lot of these lineups. If they do attack the rim headlong, you're really opening up some of the transition stuff that Miami was able to cut off going the other way, right? Because when Mm -hmm. Jokic gets a defensive rebound, he'll push, he'll kick out. The Nuggets are so good getting out on the break. I thought the Heat did overall a very good job of getting back, scrambling, even if they were undersized in some of those matchups trying to stop the ball and slow Denver down in transition. Part of what makes Bam relying on mid-range jumpers and all these things he got in game one work is no matter what happens, he is on the other side of the basket from Jokic. And so even if Jokic gets the defensive rebound, Bam is hustling back, getting back in transition, cutting him off, slowing down Denver's offense. That might be valuable, maybe even more so than like Bam getting inside more. 
And I think what makes me a little concerned for, for Miami is, yes, we're saying they need to attack the basket more. Obviously, they need to be more effective drawing fouls. Like You just are going to need more than two free throws. But we've also seen Jimmy and Bam in particular miss so many shots low right at the basket over the course of the last series. I'm a little worried about them attacking so much, pump faking a bunch once they get down there, missing shots, and then all of a sudden Denver is sprinting out the other direction. Like it, it is such a precarious balance that you can understand why Miami might be thinking about things just in terms of like the overall orientation of the floor. Like, wh- what are we willing to give up? What are we willing to live with? What do we need to be cautious about even as we're trying to score? Yeah, and who can <laughs> who can Miami credibly ask to get paint? scoring from outside of Bam and Jimmy. There were moments when Caleb Martin, um, J. Cole's protege, was able to get, was able to attack Boston in the previous series, but these are off of closeouts, which are off of what? Jimmy's penetration, right? Like, they only have two guys that they can actually say, like, here, here's the ball, go to the basket with it, right? And so it's got to be those two guys that do it. And it makes me wonder if they they shouldn't be trying to lean more into the threes, man. Like, fire up even more threes. Well, okay, so that's probably option number two, which is maybe we go a little bit smaller. And in particular, maybe we're buoyed or boldened by the performance of one Haywood Highsmith later on in the game. Maybe you don't start him, but... Was what do you think about the idea of maybe adding him as a more like a bigger part of the rotation? Yeah, I'm 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 all for adding offense, right? Like I'm already that's to me that's where my mind is for this series. Um, I mentioned this the other day on Ryan's show, but like people don't realize the last time this team was full force in the playoffs was the bubble, right? Um, and I think the reason why the Clippers didn't go wasn't able to knock them out was Doc's unwillingness to go small. Where it's like, if Montrez can't guard this dude anyway, if Zubach is his son anyway, make it harder for him on the other end of the floor. And so to me, Highsmith is in the mold of that kind of player that's going to allow you to spread these guys out. I think we kind of, brushed off the idea that Tyler Hero needed to come back for the Heat to do something in this series, but his shooting will be sorely needed because I think there was ways that they were able to sort of shut off what Duncan Robinson was was trying to do because they weren't as worried about the other shooters on the floor. They could divert resources to doing, to, to shutting down his off-ball stuff. But I think if you have more credible shooters out there, all of that um, movement off the ball becomes harder to guard. And then another thing, um, they, need, they need to watch some Draymond Green tape. If, if Jokic is going to be doing some heavy drop on Bam, Bam needs to be crushing people on screens, okay? And and if, if you crush that, that guy with your screen, that means the shooter has nothing to worry about and they're taking it wide open and now Jokic has to come up and now you're asking them to, you know, sort of second guess what they're doing out there. Um, those are the kind of things I think they should be trying to do. Yeah, it's almost a variation. The idea of, of going small is a variation of the idea of making Jokic a score, right? Because that's that's essentially the dynamic you're creating is we're going to challenge Jokic to attack 
whether it's even if it's Bam Adebayo, but he's not going to have as much help. He's not going to have as much size behind him. We're going to we're going to use that as kind of a premise to see if we can win some of the balance of this game. I think where that runs aground, that strategy runs aground is Jokic in this in game one was so unforgiving. And anytime he had Bam on his back, he was walking Bam to the basket. Anytime he had a smaller guy on him, he was demanding, calling for the ball, getting visibly frustrated when they couldn't get him the ball with Duncan Robinson or Max Struess on his back. I think Jokic might also just be a different guy than than when they played teams like the Clippers, right? Like he he has a different approach in terms of just driving straight at and posting up these guys right into the dirt. I, I honestly don't know what's feasible or not because you know we can talk about why going small against Jokic won't work. We can talk about, talk about why playing Kevin Love and, and getting bigger in this series probably wouldn't work either. I, I just don't think there's a lot of cards for Miami to play in that regard. Yeah, so that would be option number three here, which would be seeing if Love can soak up some of these rotation minutes, maybe even try to start him if he is shooting well enough. As we've seen, he's kind of gone in and out of the rotation based on how well he's shooting. Waz floated the idea of almost going small with him at the five. The other option would be to start him in the front court or play him in the front court with Bam. Do something similar to what the Lakers tried with Rui Hachimura. At the very least, Love is a hefty boy. And he has the body to, at the very least, match up with them, as opposed to, for instance, a Haywood Highsmith, who I think weighs about as much as me, but is like seven inches taller, which is not a good sign. Uh, and as we saw in the cross matches, Aaron Gordon in particular was doing a lot of damage against a Gabe Vincent, et cetera. And so at the very least, maybe you steal a couple minutes or maybe even works even more than that, Rob, where the size of love gives you enough while without sacrificing the three point shooting in theory. Yeah, yeah. I feel like a lot of the discussion about love has come from what you said, kind of mirroring this strategy that has been deployed against the Nuggets previously. Put another guy on Jokic so that Bam can roam. I think where the Kevin Love part of that falls apart, <laughs> I mean, for a bunch Ke- of different reasons. It's Kevin Love. <laughs> One, it's Kevin Love. Uh, two, that only works if the guy who's guarding Jokic is really athletic. And like, especially with the way the Heat are playing defense, like they want to front Nikola Jokic with that guy. You're telling me Kevin Love is just going to be seamlessly maneuvering <laughs> around around Jokic, taking away those angles, denying passes. It's just not something he can realistically do. So to me, the benefit of playing Love is much more on the last point you said, which is I, I'm not even going to put Love on Jokic. Offense. Well, no, I'm I'm going to put him on Aaron Gordon in just the hopes that Aaron Gordon isn't living inside. Like if you mm. take away. I don't know, the eight or 10 basically layups or dunks that Aaron Gordon got in game one, then maybe we're talking about something. And so that's kind of the value to me of Kevin. He's Look, Kevin Love is probably going to give up some of those looks anyway, but he's he can at least give a little more resistance in those situations than Gabe Vincent can. My thing about Kev Love is defensive substitution is that seven years ago, he was getting played off of the finals court for washed up Richard Jefferson. Okay, for defensive purposes. So the idea seven years ago, slower, creakier, same guy (laughs) is now going to be inserted into this series against this incredible offense for defensive purposes. It just to me, if you're going to put Kev Love out there, it's because you're leveraging what he does on offense and, you know, you're giving them a different look in that way. Yeah. Putting Kev Love in there for defense, like, even if he's not getting creamed, like, th- the way Gabe Vincent was on switches, 
Uh, that's a he's a blow by candidate. I, I think Aaron Gordon is is quick enough to just get right by that dude for sure and get and get over him. You know, like just finish over the top of Kev Love. Oh, this is a uh, man. I do not envy Spolster's job no. um, in this series. But this is, you know, I think we'll ultimately see Kevin Love get a shot in the series for the same reason you see teams try all kinds of things, which is you just have to make the Nuggets prove they can beat it at a certain point. I think when you're coaching a team in the playoffs, you can get so in your head about the domino that's four dominoes down. Like, oh, they're obviously going to beat Kevin Love and therefore we can't play him and therefore we're going to go to this next move instead. Look, we saw in game one, not only did the Heat throw the zone out in the non-Jokic minutes, in the fourth quarter, they threw it out against Jokic too. And that's not a look we expect to sustain. But in those moments, it slowed down what had been an unstoppable Denver offense to, you know, one that was good enough to win, but at least close enough that the Heat could get back into the game a little bit. One and that th- missed somehow outstanding looks, Rob. Come on, man. That The, the, the zone didn't slow them down. I don't man. look. I'm not saying it did, but the mark, like you're saying, they missed some shots. Like maybe yes. even, even okay, the, it got them out of rhythm. You're right. That's, that's literally the only point. And, and maybe that's what throwing Kevin Love in for a couple minutes, whether it's starting or in the middle of a game does, is like, let's just keep throwing different looks. Maybe we'll get lucky with a three or four minute stretch and they won't hit shots because they're a little bit out of rhythm or out of sorts. But that's what Miami's playing for. Like Those are the margins you have to win to even be in these games. What about throwing Haslam out there? Just really throw him off where it's like, (laughs) whoa. Like maybe Chris Quinn gets a couple minutes as a point of attack <laughs> defender, take him off the coaching staff. It couldn't hurt. Oh um, my god! How's Omer Yurt Seven looking? I'm like, I'm I'm joking, but like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we get a Haywood Highsmith part five here, where Yurt Seven comes in and hits four threes. I mean, I've 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 heard the thoughts out there of like, do you play? Bam and Cody Zeller together? Like, do you do you, do you go the opposite way of what Waz is suggesting? Go ultra big? Let me tell you, that ain't it. That that's <laughs> not that's not the that answer. Can't be what you want to do. There's no good answers, but there are bad answers. And yes. playing ultra big if you're the Heat is a bad answer. Yeah, this is the part of the series or, or the playoffs where a lot of teams have certain guys on the roster for specific matchups they've been anticipating all season. And the Heat surprise nature almost didn't prepare them for them. So they don't have like a go-to body off the bench in order exactly. for a Nikola Jokic matchup. And in part, that kind of maybe helped them earlier in, in the postseason because they were dictating a lot of the matchup, the terms of engagement. But now the, the Nuggets very much are, and they haven't been shaken noticeably by anything that the Heat are doing. And it almost feels like that psychological war play that Miami had been waging all postseason. Now it's on the other side where Denver has the advantage. Uh, and they look pretty comfortable in game one of what is the first NBA Finals game for a lot of these players. You know what's funny about that is if the Heat were more afraid of Joel Embiid, maybe they would have had that <laughs> right. guy. But the Heat yeah. had already the Heat had already seen. Oh, in the playoffs, we're fine with Bam and scrambling around and switching and trying to make teams like the Sixers and Easily. players like Embiid uncomfortable. But Jokic is just a different kind He's of a player. Problem in terms of how he processes the game offensively, just a totally different guy. Is Nikola Jovic playable? Maybe he no. has some like. Balkan tactics, Justin, like just we <laughs> uh, have to stop. This is getting bleak. To, all right. Anything else uh, going into game two that you guys wanted to talk about? Um, I think we got everything. Yeah, ball arena. Also, Rob, by the way, we kept doing we we kept yeah. doing the ka-ching thing. 
for Caleb Martin, who's under contract next year and has to play a whole nother season before he can hit free agency. Bruce Brown is actually making money for himself. Hell yeah, he is. We need to start doing that ka-ching for Bruce Brown because that man is going to get paid this offseason. Yeah, the story has been told a few times now, mostly by Bruce Brown, but it was surprising that he didn't get as many offers uh, in free agency that I think a lot of people expected. I do wonder if he was been so branded as like the small ball center guy, the point center in Brooklyn that like people didn't recognize that he could play just a more like a regular well, if yeah, he can play havoc sort of center role. at his size, why can't he play small forward? Like what the. F- like, it just seems obvious. <laughs> but he also, by the way, he also, if because I watched his Lebertard interview, um, he intimated that he was like, look, um, Sean Marks said he wanted me back. There were just other people. I don't know if he was trying to say Kyrie. I don't know what he was trying to say, but he was mm. like, there were other people who didn't share his feelings. And so that's why I wasn't brought back to Brooklyn. He's an interesting personality because honestly, you, you, when you watch Bruce Brown play, and especially as you alluded to, Justin, the fact that he's been this evolving, shape-shifting, like do whatever it takes and whatever my team needs kind of player, you might project the idea onto him that, oh, he's this like this quiet, this humble guy who's Man. fitting in. Man, Bruce Brown is a, is a fucking talker. Like yes. He's a cowboy. He's- he is a cowboy. He is talking he is shit cowboy. all throughout these games. He had a great interview on Sirius Radio the other day coming into the series where he said that Jokic had Anthony Davis in shambles in the Western Conference <laughs> Finals. And let me tell you, he was right. But like, it, you know, it wouldn't surprise me how in other locker rooms with other more sensitive stars, mm. Maybe, mm. He, maybe he would be confrontational in a way that would rub some people the wrong way. But in this one, I think he's really valuable. Denver is a team that needs a little bit of that kick in the ass sometimes, who needs a little bit of confrontation, and he fills that spectacularly. If you're a team who's interested in winning basketball, actual basketball games, you should want a guy as versatile and Swiss Army knife-ish as Bruce Brown is, man. 100%. Incredible offseason pickup. Mr. Colorado. Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Visible Wireless. Want a wireless provider that always brings its A-game? Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. And as if that wasn't already a huge win, you could use promo code RINGER20 to receive $20 off your first month just for listening to us talk about basketball. Not bad, right? You don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Just switch to Visible at Visible.com and use promo code RINGER20 for data management practices and additional terms. Visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. At Walt Disney World Resort, magic is found in spontaneity. The unplanned, the unexpected, an inside joke born in the Haunted Mansion queue, a surprise stitch sighting in Tomorrowland, watching fireworks from your room. These memories aren't made from predetermined plans, but manifested from simply being present and together in the most magical place. Find your moment at Walt Disney World Resort. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash RingerMBA. Just go to Indeed.com slash RingerMBA right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Since we're talking about locker rooms, why don't, why don't we pivot gears here and now talk about some of the new coaching hires that have been happening over the past couple of weeks or so. Um, let's start first with the Suns, who made a bit of a surprise hire the other day by bringing Frank Vogel uh, from back from the ether where he had been for about a year now. Uh, they hired him for five years over Kevin Young, an assistant on Monty Williams' staff who'd been generating a lot of heat as a potential successor there. Um, Waz, what do you think about the hire? Because on the one hand, Vogel was sort of minted with the bubble run, winning a title, and so he is on that short list of guys who have won a title. On the other hand... I, I remember him still as the guy, like the really sad Orlando Magic coach with like a light beard, like as a sad guy with a light beard. I definitely saw myself in him, but he, he it, I almost can't shake that version of him and square it with the new version of him, which is like title coach now coaching KD, LeBron, and, and all of the stars. So I have a I have a bit of a soft spot for Vogel because I remember the summer of 2019. I remember people you know, having the sense that the Lakers were left with egg on their face. Um, oh, it was so embarrassing. Kawhi strung them along and they got left with scraps, so to speak, like Danny Green and ha ha ha, Dwight Howard. Why would they want to do that? <laughs> All of that stuff. And people were laughing at that team. And they came into the season, they shot out like a freaking cannon with the number one with a bullet defense in the NBA. And Vogel freaking orchestrated that, right? And so I got a lot of respect for what this guy does on defense. And, you know, I you know, I talked to a couple of people after he got hired because I was, I'm not going to lie, I was kind of confused by it. And they were like, look, um, this might be a DeAndre Ayton play to see if you can actually salvage what this guy's talents are and what he could do. And if Vogel could get this guy to play to his capabilities on defense – and you got KD, and you got Booker, who's now a plus defender all of a sudden. Um, I think now, if you have now a dominant, really great defense, and now you say, look, we have a defensive-minded team, and Booker and KD can sort of just take us home on offense with their individual brilliance, I think you kind of got something there. Yeah, it's that combination of championship defensive coach for a team that needs a championship-level defense, like Phoenix was just not there and has really hasn't been for a minute. And I think the other thing about the Vogel experience with the Lakers is it's very easy in retrospect to think of that team as, oh, you know, AD and LeBron and this cast of capable role players who we, we now think of as being very different, you know, in terms of the reputation than they were before, you know, KCP and Kyle Kuzma and Caruso, these guys earned their stripes in that run. But look back at that team and think about where those players were in terms of the reputations in their games then. And you exactly. see a team of like, Again, a, team, a roster that was cobbled together, that managed to play nine and ten deep throughout the playoffs, something that Phoenix in this current run just couldn't do. They like could not string together enough viable minutes from the supporting cast. And Vogel has proven to be the kind of coach who can do that. Like he will get the good out of the JaVale McGee minutes. He will get the good out of the Rajon Rondo minutes. Phoenix needs some of that kind of alchemy right now. And maybe Vogel can provide that. 
So, and the personality type, I think, matters too, right? Because I, I don't know, for some reason I... Or maybe this was just my own personal wish that they would get a coach who could hold cats like KD and Booker accountable, who would have some level of gravitas and respect. Um, they didn't go that route. But guess what, though? This is why I like Vogel as a fit. You can be one of those hold accountable guys um, and actually have the credibility to do it. Or you can be like Vogel, sort of laissez-faire, non-threatening. But there's a third option. Um, I will remind you guys of a certain David Blatt, Mr. I won championships at Cheska Moscow, wherever the fuck he was coaching before. <laughs> and this idea that he was supposed to command respect and everybody rolling their fucking eyes at this dude every single day. Vogel's not going to do that, which I think is important, too, with this group of personalities. So I think there's there's, there's a fit there, too, because having accountability guy only works if he's actually credible in the in the eyes of the people he's trying to keep accountable. Um, Vogel's not that guy, but guess what? He's not going to annoy the shit out of people either. Do you guys remember when David Blatt said that among all the professions in the world, a basketball coach makes more critical decisions second only to a fighter pilot? Yeah, <laughs> I do remember this. Just amazing. Amazing content from our guy, David Blatt. And you agree, right? Of course. Podcaster one, fighter oh, pilot yeah, yeah, two, yeah. head coach. I three. feel like he said he he wasn't like he wasn't intimidated to meet a head of state because he had already done so in some. Pre- he was just saying some crazy shit all the freaking time. I miss we him. He had this insane ego. Um, but yeah, the, uh, Vogel again. He reminds me of that because he's just not. He's just the opposite of that. He's frictionless in that way. Right. It, to, maybe the the approach isn't to hold people accountable. It's just to not play the game at all. Because if you bristle against <laughs> those stars, it's yep. not going to go your way. And like, even he only lasted a couple years in, in LeBron's world uh, because he ultimately had to be the fall guy for the Russell Westbrook experience. But it, it did serve him well for a certain amount of time. And I, I do think what you guys talked about of, of instilling a defense with role players is probably the key there because there aren't going to be a lot of options um, with the Phoenix Suns this offseason. I do want to talk about the next step for a lot of uh, these teams that just hired new coaches. And, and the next step is really figuring out who is going to play around Booker and Durant. Uh, Chris Paul has a non-guaranteed contract. I believe half of his $30.8 million salary for next season isn't guaranteed until late June. So just before free agency starts, he's a potential someone you could turn into just bench, right? Just other players, which they did not have in the postseason. DeAndre Ayton, Maybe there's a move there where they ship him out, maybe to Dallas or somewhere else, and get other players in there. Um, Rob, do you think that's like number one on the list, both for Vogel and the Suns writ large, which is just figuring out who else we could find to soak up some credible minutes for this team? Yeah, and that's where you know you're already running into a hard choice as you consider your future between what you want and what is viable. Because if we're talking about DeAndre Aiden and Chris Paul as trade candidates. I, I, I'm along, like I'm, I'm along for this ride of of what we're describing on this podcast of part of Vogel's job being what can we get out of DeAndre Ayton defensively, but the reality is that Ayton is more tradable than Chris Paul, even with all of his caveats, even with every you know every question that we've had about how he floats through games, his salary, where he is, his salary, oh, where he is defensively. Like, look, there's lots of reasons you can doubt DeAndre Ayton. But he's just at a, at a much different point in his career than Chris Paul is, and at a very different price point 
in a way where even with the non-guarantee, it's just kind of hard to cobble together enough salary for a deal that makes sense for Chris Paul. And I, I kind of think, you know, trading Paul is easier. I don't even know, though, that we'll see it in the offseason if it happens. It may be one of those deals that has to wait until that December 15th deadline just so there's more salary that can be moved, just so there's more contracts that can be included and cobbled together in a potential deal. Because if you are going to pick and choose, Paul is probably the first player out the door. I think he's better than DeAndre Ayton. I think he's more valuable than DeAndre Ayton, but he's significantly older. And if, if the Ayton gamble pays off, if Vogel can get the best out of him, that's a totally different kind of experience, totally different kind of, of you know, foundational piece you now have to add and really consider as you're as you're building out around Booker and Durant. So you have to look at it that way. But man, I I just have a hard time seeing, even, even if you're looking at primarily constructions that are, can we get two role players who we can depend on in the playoffs for Chris Paul? Show me the team that's giving those guys up for a point guard of Paul's age. Like, where is the deal that makes sense for that kind of transaction? Also, this is the same team that everybody thought was coming out the West going into the playoffs. Like, they're still foundationally that group. Um, if you want to get rid of Chris Paul, like, to me, it's just for injury reasons more so than his actual play and what he could do. It's just a, a doubt that he could actually stay on the floor yeah. um, into April and May and, if you're lucky, June. Um, yeah, I, I understand that. I, I I understand it, but you know, you wonder to Rob's point, what do you even get back for cutting loose a guy that good who you just, I, I don't think you're going to be able to get any true value for him. So Phoenix currently has six players, maybe seven with a team option for Ish Wainwright under contract for next season. Uh, two of whom are partial guarantees in Chris Paul and campaign, at least for the time being. They need a completely new team yeah. around their four guys if they do end up keeping that. And so the work is cut out for them. I assume a lot of these guys could be brought back pretty pretty easily. Like I don't think the the market for Jacques Landell like really boomed during the postseason. Uh, <laughs> outside of perhaps good. <laughs> this podcast. I thought he was very good. Yeah. But I mean, let, me, let me tell you the Miami Heat could use Jacques Landale right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yoke yeah. Um so Honestly, I think the bigger question is on a front office that, I mean, I, I've dinged them in the past. They're just like, the, the moves on the fringes are going to matter. They've always mattered, but I think they're going to matter more for a team like this where you need to be finding and unearthing the Austin Reeves of the world. Like, Landell is one of the successes, and like, but they need three to four of those guys to build out a credible rotation. Like, You need to have a team here, and just based on the, the quick back of the envelope math uh, that I'm getting from basketball reference, they're at $165 million. Uh, next year. And so we're talking about repeater tax. We're talking about second apron problems. So this is going to be really dicey. You know, I, I keep coming back to the, like the, the victory lap. Our, our, our guy Ishbia took just right after trading for Durant, but like it, it's the type of thing where it's like getting a player of Durant's caliber is the toughest thing in the NBA. But then after you get him, everything else literally becomes the most difficult thing in the NBA because of how many other like complications it provides. But like it's, it's going to be a fascinating offseason Phoenix regardless. Well, here's the good news is when you have Devin Booker and Kevin Durant as your best players. Yes, you have to fill out the rest of your team. But all of a sudden, you have lots of different options about what that team can look like, right? Devin Booker can be a backup point guard, can be a primary pick-and-roll ball handler. Kevin Durant can do some of that stuff. KD could be in the playoffs, your full-time backup five, if that's how you want to style your team and you want to get a four alongside him who makes sense in that context. So, you know, 
obviously it's hard to walk into any summer and string together an entire rotation based off of like salary cap exceptions and minimums. But if you're going to do it, start with two really versatile wing, like combo kind of positional players who can do a lot of different things and then see what's available. Like you can at least play the market in a different way versus if you had a true point guard who can only play point guard or a true center who can only play center. The Suns do have some flexibility as far as what their eventual team actually looks like. Yeah. Speaking of teams that we don't know what they'll eventually look like, the Detroit Pistons, mm. who hired Monty Williams for six years, potentially eight years, uh, it could reach up to $100 million. The, the basic story we've been given was is that Monty Williams was going to take the year off, but Tom Gorse didn't take no for an answer and just basically stuffed his his pockets and basically his entire jacket, his entire closet full of jacket pockets full of money um, <laughs> because this just like completely obliterated the market for coaches to the point where like I wonder what like Steve Kerr is now asking his agent for and, or someone like Eric Spolstra like how much more money he can get on an extension. Um, what do you think about that move wise? Because on the one hand, you could say this is kind of ridiculous that they, they went so over the top here. On the other hand, like it's kind of what an owner's money is for, right? And there yeah. is no salary cap on coaches and some of these other stuff. So I, I guess you could credit Gores in another sense that he's like willing to take and do what it takes to, to win. So I remember somebody would, uh, once said that how we know we've gotten to a place with black quarterbacks in football that is like semi-normalized where a black quarterback can just be average. Kid just allowed to be average. Not Michael Vick, not Randall Cunningham, not Dante Culpepper, just average. We know we've reached equilibrium <laughs> in the black quarterback um, situation. I'm, I'm sensing Ma- some withering faint praise for Monty Williams. Monty Williams I don't getting like this it. deal. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't like Monty what you're Williams saying, Monty getting this deal. Is all you need to know about the state of black coaching because it's not merited. He does not deserve to be the highest paid coach in the NBA. He has not earned that. Um, The fact that he's done it, more power to him. Good for him. He's clearly got some great relational people skill, whatever you call it. Obviously, I think he's one of the better coaches in the league. I don't think he's a bad coach or anything like that, right? It's not like they're hiring David Blatt or something um, and paying him all this money. But Man, you know, all of this money to coach a team that's going to suck for at least the next two to three years, that's incredible to me. Like, we know they're not going to be good. Like, there's no scenario where Detroit turns into, like, I don't know, the Sacramento of this year. That's They don't have that many competent players on their team or players that have proven themselves in the NBA to be competent yet. Um, And so that's why I'm surprised by this, like, they are going nowhere soon. Maybe they're building towards something. Maybe they're young guys. I'm still a big Cade Cunningham believer. I just love his um, sort of temperamental makeup and his game, his feel, his IQ and all of that stuff. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> Producer Ben just reminded us. The wise man. Um, wise man is over there. Uh, maybe their future is bright, but their present is anything but. See, these two things are are definitely related, right? In terms of why do you pay Monty Williams this much money to come coach a team that's probably not going to be good for a couple years? And the answer is that you hope he can build them into something that can be ahead of schedule, right? You know, especially when you think about where does the foundation of a team come from? Where does the identity of a team come from? Maybe Kate Cunningham can be the kind of talent ultimately at the end of the day 
who can set that kind of line for your team, right? We, we see it with, like, with guys like Jokic and LeBron and Steph, mm-hmm. who's like, you're so talented. You have a style of play that feeds into the way that other people play. Maybe Cade is that kind of prospect, ultimately. We'll have to see kind of how his career turns out because he's barely played NBA basketball. But the other way you get that is you build it top down from your leadership first and foremost. And the Pistons are a team that have a lot to figure out in terms of how their whole organization and operation is going to run. Monty Williams helps fill some of that void. He helps you know, create some of that culture of accountability we were talking about with teams like Phoenix, with other franchises. And then you retrofit the roster ultimately with players who can embody that kind of vision. And look, Monty Williams is a very rich man. I don't think anyone is saying he's the best coach in the NBA, but he's a, he's a good, coveted coach on a market that had lots of names involved. And this is what it takes to get good, coveted coaches to come to teams that aren't going to be very good sometimes. He's going to restart the auto industry with that type of money, you know? <laughs> Just pouring it back into the community, you know? <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, look, it, 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 this is a different situation, but it does remind me of Phil Jackson in New York, where he clearly did not want the job. And then the freaking salary got to a point where it's like, I can't in good conscience say no to $70 million. Like, you know, but at least... Monty's done this job before. So yeah. <laughs> it should turn out better than it did for Phil um, in Gotham. Well, especially like Monty Williams by his disposition and what he values and the way he operates is a good coach for a young team. It's yeah. just that he's overqualified for that job. And so, you know, let's yes. say you end up paying $70 million to him yep. to come do it. Yeah. As interesting as it is to, to figure out what's going to happen with Webanyama in San Antonio, I think it's actually a little bit more fascinating to see all of the teams that base their entire futures around the potential of drafting him now scramble to figure out some sort of identity and some sort of pathway to competition. Because you're not only seeing it in Detroit, but you're seeing it in a team like Houston where they're like, uh, James Harden. And like, what do we do with this number four pick? You guys want this? And and Detroit, and it's all in the rumor mill, so who knows? But like, there's been talk floated that like, maybe they would be up for trading that number five pick for a veteran. It's just like, everyone is now scrambling because a lot of these teams, and more specifically, the team's ownership is probably going to be saying like, well, what is the result of all of our suffering for two, three years now? And if you're a team like Detroit, this might be an easy way to not get rich quick, but get competent quick. Like they have some young talent. And if someone like Monty can just organize it in a way that's competent and show like progress, I think that's going to be a win. And, and we'll say the, the quiet part, quiet, keep Troy Weaver's job um, and allow him to potentially keep stacking failed center after failed center after failed center. If uh, if the Pistons had won the lottery and they, they were drafting Victor Webb and Yama, and let's say they still wanted to hire like Monty Williams is still their guy. Is the Monty Williams deal like $20 million cheaper than this because there's just more appeal in coming to Coach Victor? You'd have Possibly. to assume so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, instead of... Instead of... <laughs> instead of going into the negotiation, make me the highest paid person <laughs> in the entire industry. I That that might not have been his negotiating point. Mm. That's what we My- had to do for Waz, actually. Oh, yeah. The group chat. <laughs> <laughs> Make me the highest paid podcaster in the, in the entire history of podcasts. But but speaking of the Pistons, would I'm be coming so for you, Joe Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of the coaching uh, salary market, though, I don't know if you guys caught Adam Silver's press conference, but easily the funniest moment was it was it was lobbed to him. You know, 
there's these incredible coaching contracts that are that are reported that are coming out, you know, obviously alluding to Monty Williams' contract. Do we need to at least consider like coaches' contracts being in some kind of cap system to equalize the playing field and the market for all teams or whatnot? And Adam Silver's response was just to explain what a salary cap is and the way it worked without Did answering Sarver the question. question? <laughs> he might have. <laughs> but I just, thought it was a, I just thought it was a sensational, like, I'm just going <laughs> to sidestep this and not even remotely entertain the premise of this question. No, I mean, uh, again, I, I, do, I do give Gore's credit for paying what it took to get someone of Bonnie's caliber sure. to do yes. so. And, I, and I'm sure his, his owner brethren and sistren um, are not happy about the, uh, the insane overpay. So kudos to him again for doing that. And, and Monty Williams' family, I'm happy for y'all. But geez, Louise, my no. goodness. Waz, on this podcast, <laughs> we are in favor of anything that makes other billionaires angry. So 100%. Look, well, well 100%. done, Tom Gores. Um, last one on the docket, uh, Philly hiring Nick Nurse. We talked a little about the possibility of this. It seemed kind of foretold uh, in advance. So why don't we, we just jump right to the question, which is, so obviously James Harden seemingly destined for Houston, potentially, maybe we'll see, who knows. Uh, there has been a rumor, which like I actually spent a few minutes trying to track down the genesis of this rumor. And I think it is specifically Fred Van Vliet saying like, cool, on Twitter when when Nurse was hired by Philly because apparently they have a good relationship. There was a clip circulated of him saying like how much he loves Nick Nurse, yada, yada, yada. What do you think about the idea, Rob, of if they lose Harden, Philly, marrying uh, Van Vliet and Nurse back again? They, get, they, they both put on the NN hats together yep. at the press conference. Does that... Like, and does that like get you going at all about the next chapter of of the Embiid co-pilot uh, legacy here? I actually, you know, I hadn't really considered to to sidestep your question. Are they just going <laughs> to okay, like, you know, I wonder if part of Nick Nurse's deal is like you got to sell the in and merchandise in the Sixers team shop. Like we got to get this in front of more people. We got to create some more outlets, more interest for, for all this merch I have sitting in my garage. <laughs> I, I do think that, look, the the Fred Van Vliet thing is being triangulated a little bit from some some approval tweets, from some comments about Nurse, from obviously the fact that, that look, they like working together. And you can tell from the fact that Van Vliet is definitely a Nick Nurse guy. Nick Nurse is definitely a Van Vliet guy by the fact that he basically refused to take him off the floor, almost ran him into the ground in the process because he trusted him to be out there and to make things happen. Fred Van Vliet is not a replacement for James Harden. He's a very different yeah. kind of player, very different kind of outlook for your team, different talent bracket, if we're being honest. Like, I have a lot of respect for Fred Van Vliet. All of that said... And, I and how does he fit next to Maxi? Well, that that's too. A, that's a tough... It's it's a defensive small situation. It's a small backcourt. I mean, Van Vliet's a better defender and can honestly guard maybe shooting guard styled players probably more effectively than James Harden can. But man, I would love to hear Nick Nurse under truth serum. Would you rather have James Harden or Fred Van Vliet as your starting point guard? I, I don't think I don't think you need that. Did you, you watch so? the press conference? <laughs> yeah. did, did you did you not see how he was completely caught off guard by the question of the second best player on his team's free agency. Wait, you, you didn't see that, Rob? I actually well, didn't he see was it. Also, oh my he was God, also caught dude. off guard because the reporter asked him a question. Nurse tried to sidestep it. I, I assumed out of fear of like tampering or whatever. And then the reporter was like, no, no, you didn't answer my question, which was a very mm. welcome to Philly moment. And he was like, all right, so what, what do you think about James Harden? 
coming back. And he was like, I mean, James, I would say James <laughs> is a good player. <laughs> it's like kind of pretty close. Yeah. And it was just crazy how wrong footed he was, which makes me think like, yo, this, James Harden ain't coming back over there. That's what that answer felt like to me, right? Um, and so, you know, uh, Fred Van Vliet, I think, you know, as far as Harden quote unquote replacements, I think you could do honestly do a lot worse. Um, I'm For somebody sure. who's a big fan of Fred Van Vliet and what what he brings to a team. Um, I, I, you know, I openly root for the guy. Just think he has an incredible story and just as far as like the makeup of an NBA player, like you, it's hard to top for the stuff, so to speak, that Fred Van Vliet brings to the table. But yeah, no, that man is not a shooting guard. That man is not um, the orchestrator of an offense. Uh, that man is not six foot five. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, as far as replacement goes, you know, that's tough. It's probably a bet, ultimately, if Van Vliet is the guy, is the replacement. It's a bet that Tyrese Maxey has a big step to take. And yeah, the idea exactly. of them as a collaborative backcourt with Embiid, maybe that can be enough. I don't know about that, personally. But you could do worse. You could definitely do worse. We, we love Fred on this podcast. Or it's a, a bet that like Embiid is just so good that all he needs around him in order to make like a number three seed in the East is just credible, good rotation players, right? Yeah, I'm not mad at that idea. Um, and also, I think Van Vliet, even if he's not uh, as incredible, incredible a playmaker, sort of eyes behind his head type of passer like Harden is, because very few people, literally in the history of the league, are right in that way. That's one of James Harden's ultimate talents. Um, he definitely organized a damn offense and make sure Embiid gets a goddamn post entry pass in big possessions against the freaking Boston Celtics in a potential closeout game. I, I, I'm just saying. I think Fred Van Vliet has it in him to um, accomplish that task. I just want Embiid to have a new, like, number two every season now. Like, it, it's almost like a reality show. Yeah, just new show. excuses? Yeah, he do need <laughs> new excuses every year. <laughs> well, I was thinking back on the Ben Simmons, in air quotes, sweepstakes, and how, remember when we were like, no, Darren Fox is not what you need in, in exchange for Ben Simmons or like Tyrese Halliburton. We're like, nah, we, they need they need a bigger name, a bigger star. And I guess Harden is that to an extent. But like, man, they had, either of those guys right now, they'd be looking pretty good. Yeah, Darren Fox and Embiid would be kind of dope. I'm not going to lie. I, I didn't see it at the time, but I was wrong. Like Fox's mid-range game would have been more than enough for where it is now to make that kind of that kind of yeah. I know. Work. I thought Ben Simmons was trash. The idea that you get an <laughs> actual competent NBA player for that dude, I was like, bring the Aaron Fox on down. Um, I do want to ask you quickly uh, about, and specifically, I want to ask Waz quickly about Joe Missoula's presumably coming back now, or not presumably. Stevens said it recently, uh, and and in, additionally, apparently, he's losing three potential assistant coaches to Houston. Imun Adoka is, is bringing the band back together, just minus Joe. And also this quote was from, from one Danny Ainge, who really went to bat for Missoula in the Boston Globe the other day. Which makes me think he's not the guy. Interesting. Okay. Well, why don't that's, you go that's ahead That's with then? that because Danny Ainge is, you know, you know how... Y'all know Danny Ainge and his sideways. He's always doing something sideways. Mm. So for him to come out and just give this full-throated 
uh, sort of um, uh, endorsement of Joe Mazzulla, the team he no longer um, runs, ba- ba- basically some of his damn competition. I'd like I'd, to, to me, that's just Danny Ainge just being a shithead and being like, yeah, yeah, no, he's the greatest. He's he's the next Red Airbag. I'm, I'm telling you, you got to keep Joe Mazzulla <laughs> in that building. It's you incredible. Think he's, he's foisting Larry David style 100%. Joe Mazzulla onto the Celtics. 100%. I like this. You mean to oh, tell me the it. Celtics are incapable of getting a coach that's better than Joe Mazzulla in there? Is that what y'all trying to tell me? And y'all think Danny Ainge actually believes that? Well, at this point, the market, like, I don't know who else they would turn to unless they they really saw something in Mike Budenholzer that, like, that he didn't do in, in can, can I interest like, you in a, in a doc reunion? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I will say, no. like, the fact that he, Ainge explicitly said and the quote is, I don't think there's anybody there that doesn't believe that Joe is a better is better than M.A. as a coach. <sighs> I have never heard the executive I mean, of a completely different f- franchise levy like, judgments on past and present coaches of other organizations. About? Wild the guy stuff. who got them to the brink of the championship last year and the dude who flamed out went down 3-0 with home court advantage in the... What is this? What, like, what are we doing with this? We can't, We have to, to... Like, Danny Ainge can't be trusted when he's speaking publicly. He's always got some type of agenda that he's getting. And guess what? That's his job. He's actually smart to be doing so in his public um, pronouncements. But Jesus Christ, everybody at the Celtics, everybody, that's why the Celtics players were so mad when they found out that Ime wasn't coming back because they thought Joe was so much better than Ime. The freaking players damn sure didn't think that. And I mean, who's more important than the players in that damn organization? This is, it's just an absurd, it's, this is just crazy, y'all. <laughs> this is crazy talk. The, the more we talk through it, it really does feel like the equivalent of, I think it was after game one of the Eastern Conference Finals when Jimmy Butler was like, man, if they were smart, they would really play through Marcus Smart a lot more than they did. Uh, it, it kind of feels like that sort of underhanded tactic. I think you're right, Waz. I think, I think Ainge is after something here. And look, Joe Mazzula, look, I'm I'm good for him. They're giving him a shot. I think they need to get him some veteran assistance in there to help him. Like, they need to help him become the guy that they want him to be. He can't just do it on his own. He can't just do it overnight. And whatever, they did end up going to a, a game seven of a conference final, ultimately. That's an accomplishment in your first year on the job. High-pressure-ass situation. I don't think it's a crime that this guy got, got to keep the job. However, the idea that there, there is no better coach out there than Joe Mazzula is patently ridiculous. There are some stories that come across the wire that I just know that I have to talk to Waz about. One is Joe Mazzula. <laughs> One is is the Unitas launch of their new footwear division. So I'm, I'm glad we can get both in. Are we um, are we getting some some SponCon some product from Unitas for all the mentions on this pod? I, I guarantee you about 0.3% of the people listening to this pod have any clue what <laughs> you guys are talking about with this United stuff. That's, that's the fun of the group chat. It's, it's uh, an investigation more mm-hmm. than it is. Real heads. Yeah, than, than talking about things in, in the news. All right, let's, uh, let's wrap it there. Uh, enjoy game two tomorrow, Rob specifically, but everyone else listening out there. Uh, thank you. Thank you to Eduardo Campo. Thank you to Ben Cruz on production. Uh, we'll see you on Wednesday for game three. See ya.